First Kings chapter 18. First Kings 18. Last week we saw that the Lord rained down fire from the sky and consuming Elijah's offering and winning the contest. And by raining that fire down from the sky, the Lord drew his people back to himself. And the people, they prove they're genuine. They, they fall on their face and they say, he is the Lord. The Lord is God. The Lord is God. The people prove the genuineness of that statement by following Elijah's orders to execute the idolaters, the prophets of Baal. Um, to be honest, if you were sitting down in a coordinating meeting or whatever and said, how could this outreach or how could this retreat or how could this Sunday or how could this conversation you're having with a coworker, like how could it go the best? This is it. I mean, this is it. There's no better ending for this day that Elijah could have imagined. And yet, despite God bringing Elijah to this pinnacle of just being used and serving him, the prophet is going to end up that day out of the promised land, sulking at Mount Sinai just a few days later. And so as we see what happens to bring out that response from Elijah and then God's merciful love to his discouraged servant, may we see that even the most powerfully used person is no different than us at their core. So chapter 18, we pick it up in verse 41. So this is after the contest is over, the prophets of Baal have been executed down in the valley by the brook Kishon. And in verse 41, Elijah said unto Ahab, get you up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. We know that Ahab traveled to Mount Carmel by chariot. He had certainly brought food, but he hadn't eaten a crumb due to how the day had played out. And now, here he is, he's not on the mountain anymore, he's down by the brook Kishon, and he's, he's just watched all of his wife's prophets be executed. This phrase, get you up, is not just climb up the mountain. It's, it's filled with the concept that, or the impression that Ahab is downcast at this moment. Things did not turn out like he'd hoped. He was hoping for more rain. Elijah's going to come back and we're going to get rain. There was still no rain. And he knows the Lord is the only God, but he's paralyzed about what to do next. I read that and it makes me sad. While Saul is one of the saddest stories in the Bible because he knew the Lord but wouldn't listen and therefore God wouldn't talk to him, Ahab is an even sadder story because he knew the Lord was real, he knew the Lord loved him, but he refused to embrace God's invitation. Someday when you're walking around heaven and it smells like something's burning, you'll know you're near Saul's house. Because if you ask where the smell's coming from, people will tell you it's the ashes of his wasted life. That's a joke. Nothing's going to be burning up in heaven. He might smell like smoke when he gets there, but not for all eternity. But even if Saul gets no reward in heaven, I mean, we can't know for sure, but the scriptures seem to indicate that he's there. At least he's there. Ahab will not be there. He will not be there. But Ahab's absence isn't because God or God's servants didn't love Ahab. Elijah, in these next few verses, is so very compassionate to a man who, think about it, he's responsible for sanctioning the murder and the persecution of his former classmates when he was younger in the School of Prophets and his current comrades in ministry. And, and what he tells him now, he says, Ahab, you haven't eaten anything all day. Go up, back up to your chariot. Go get something to eat. And then he encourages him about the famine situation. He goes, I hear the sound of abundance of rain. I remember sitting in my car. Well, it wasn't my car. It was my wife's car. We were dating at the time. And I was so distraught over, I don't even remember what it was, but I just, it was a crossroads in my life. And, and you guys have probably had things like that, like crossroads in your life where you messed up or you feel you know, great shame because of your lack of faith or your disobedience or whatever it might be. And, and you know, you're at that crossroads, like, what are you going to do? 
Like you're not going to fake it anymore and you don't want to be a phony. You don't want to be a hypocrite. But at the same time, you're like, I don't, I don't know if I can change. Like I'm, I'm so acquainted with my failure and I'm so ashamed of my failure that where do I even go from here? And, you know, I remember just sitting in the car, just, I just sat there. You feel paralyzed. And the Lord is so wonderful in those moments not to beat us over the head and go, yeah, you know what, you are, you are a failure. You know, Will, I, I had such high hopes for you and, you know, so many things I wanted to do and you just, you just would never come up to him. Even if that's the reality, like that's not how he talks to us. Ahab could have been such a great king and the Lord wanted to do so much in his life. And so Elijah is reflecting that love and that desire of God to draw Ahab close and tells me, he says, listen, I hear the rumbling noise of a storm. Now, no one else heard any rumbling noises because there wasn't a cloud in the sky. But Elijah is trying to encourage him. I know, I know you're worried about the rain situation, Ahab. This thing was more important, though. But that doesn't mean God's not going to bless you with rain. Ahab, God has a plan, and he wants to bless your life. This day can be the first day of the rest of your life if you choose to receive it that way. Well, that did get Ahab moving. Verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And while he goes back up the hill to eat, Elijah goes back up the mountain to pray. It says, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth, and he put his face between his knees. Uh, he didn't throw himself on the earth, <laughs> on the ground. People do that with temper tantrums, not usually when they're praying. But the idea here means he bent down on his knees and then he stretched out his hands. It's that position of being prostrate. It's how someone would approach a king back then. And so now that the people had confessed that the Lord alone was God, Elijah prays, Lord, lift this covenant curse. And in the book of Leviticus and then later on in Deuteronomy, God had said, listen, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. And so here what, you know, Elijah's saying, Lord, they've repented though. You also said that if they repented, you do this. So Lord, lift the curse. And he begins to pray for rain. Now I love this because sometimes, sometimes when you see God start using people, they get a big head. They start, they start strutting around. Like there are times when, I'm not going to go there, okay. There are times when you've known someone and, and they're, they're humble and they're, you know, they're just walking with the Lord and all of a sudden, boom, like God just starts doing something in their life, whatever it might be, like blessing them financially or blessing them at work or doing a powerful work as they're sharing their faith or maybe serving the Lord in some type of ministry or whatever. And then all of a sudden, all that humility starts to go away and they start, you know, strutting around like a peacock. And Elijah, I mean, he's, he's got a killer resume right now. Like how many people can say, you know, you know, Mr. Prophet, you know, we're looking for a prophet in our area. Why would we want you? And he's like, I called fire down from heaven, bro. <laughs> like, like, you're not going to have any competition on any other resumes there. But Elijah doesn't let this victory go to his head. His position, being prostrate before the king, shows, Lord, I want you to know that this, this request I'm making to you isn't a demand. I don't think you owe us anything. I'm asking you. He is a humble servant carrying out his orders by asking the king for a blessing. And so, verse 43, he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And the servant went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again seven times. He, seven more times he said, go back. Now, I have to confess to you, I have no idea who this guy is or how he's connected with Elijah. I don't know where he came from. Elijah declared earlier in this chapter that he stood alone, all right? He didn't say, it's just me here and my faithful servant, Bob. Like, he didn't mention anyone. So I don't know who this guy is. I don't know if he was like, sorry, Elijah, I'm a little late. Like, I don't, I don't know how this, this guy came onto the scene. Maybe someone on the mountain decides to become his servant. The Bible doesn't tell us where this guy comes from, but Elijah puts him to work while he continues to pray. And he says, go and look. And the reason he tells him to go and look is because from the tip of Mount Carmel on a clear day, you could see all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, both the times I've been to Israel, it was cloudy. And so I've never seen that view. But 
that's normally where the rainstorms in the Middle East come from. Sometimes they come down from the north through the Hula Valley, but most of the time they come off the Mediterranean Sea. And so he says, go look. And the guy says, I don't see anything. There's nothing. And then you know, he says, go back. And this happens seven times. Elijah does not seem to me to be a man who is easily discouraged when it came to prayer. And God didn't bring the widow's son back to life after two requests. Isaiah prayed a th- uh, Isaiah, Elijah prayed a third time. And here he keeps on praying even though through seven seeming non-responses of God in prayer. As I walk longer with the Lord, I think I'm getting better at being persistent in prayer, not getting discouraged and giving up. But Elijah kind of gives us the impression here that he would have stayed up there praying until the servant came back with the news of a cloud, that he just would have kept praying because he was absolutely convinced that's what God wanted to do. And that's the kind of persistence I want. I want to have when a miracle's needed, when I need the Lord to come through, that I just, I am persistent and I, I don't take no... Obviously, I would take no for an answer, but you know what I'm saying. The idea is, is I'm not going to take a non-response for an answer. I'm going to keep asking the Lord until he makes it very clear the answer is no. I want to pray like that. I don't ever want to get discouraged because it seems like God isn't doing anything or God isn't answering. Well, the eighth time he goes there, verse, or the seventh time, verse 44, it came to pass at the seventh time that he said, behold, there arises a little cloud. Now, that sounds like a negative, but actually the word behold uh, means he's excited. The word behold means check this out. He comes back the seventh time. He goes, check this out. There's a little cloud over there this time. There hadn't been a whiff of any kind of rain cloud in three and a half years in Israel. And so when Elijah hears that news, behold, there arises a a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. He said, go up. And say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and get you down so the rain doesn't stop you. In Israel, rainstorms move in quickly. I have experienced that. We were in uh, our hotel area in Galilee, and I mean, the whole day was just beautiful, clear blue skies. We're on the the, uh, Mount of Beatitudes and Capernaum, and everything's gorgeous. And all of a sudden, me and Bev are talking in our, our room, and you hear this it sounds like literally someone's shaking the building and, and, and you walk outside and it was just darkness everywhere. Um, those storms, they funnel in through that Hula Valley area into the, the very low elevation area of the Galilee and they, they just go quickly. And so he tells the servant, he says, go tell Ahab, get ready to go and get moving because your chariot's going to get stuck if you don't. You're going to get stuck before you even get started. But the storm came on so fast it didn't matter. Verse 45 tells us, And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Uh, Meanwhile means before Ahab could finish prepping his chariot, the rains came down. And so Ahab makes for the city of Jezreel. Jezreel is located at the foot of Mount Gilboa on a rise overlooking the valley of Jezreel. That's Mount of Cormac. The valley of Jezreel... We talk about it all the time. We just don't call it that most of the time. Uh, we usually call it the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Armageddon. Same valley. The Jezreel Valley, it's like a, a banana shape in the, in the northern part of Israel. And right from Mount Carmel, you can look right down into it. And so he heads down the mountain and he heads for this city, which is about 15 miles away from Mount Carmel. 1 Kings 21 verse 1 tells us that Ahab had a summer palace here. And chapter 19, just a few verses, it lets us know that Jezebel was staying there. She didn't come up on the mountaintop, even though she was commanded to come up, she stayed there. But what's interesting to me is there's one more verse in this chapter that lets us know that Ahab doesn't travel to Jezreel alone. Verse 46 says, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, I get the image in my mind, you know, and there's this guy, you know, and all of a sudden, you know, you know, Elijah's up in the mountain, all of a sudden he's like, you know, and, you know, and, and you know, he's like, you know, the Greek god Hermes or something, you know, running off with his, you know, wings on his shoes or something like that. That's not exactly what's going on here. While I'm sure Ahab had difficulties getting back to Jezreel in a timely fashion due to the mud uh, the rain would cause, the writer, though, is clear here that God 
supernaturally enabled Elijah to outrun the chariot, okay? Uh, This is not just Ahab going slow. This is a supernatural thing that God enables, empowers Elijah to do. But the common thing that, that I have heard is that, well, Elijah ran so fast he got there before Ahab. That's not what the Scriptures say here. He didn't run separately from Ahab. He girded his robe, which means to tuck in the bottom part of your robe, into your belt, your sash. And the reason he does this is because, well, first off, it's probably hard to run in a robe. But secondly, it was common practice for kings in the Middle East to have runners go before their chariot. And they would always do this. They'd stick their sash, their robe in their sash, tighten it up, cinch it up. And then while the chariot's going, kind of at a leisurely pace, they're hoofing it, you know, as kind of like his honor guard, his honor that to announce the king, make way for the king, and all that kind of stuff. And then to announce him when he arrives at a city. Well, when it says that Elijah ran before Ahab, it doesn't mean he ran to Jezreel before Ahab got to Jezreel. The phrase ran before Ahab means to run where Ahab's face was pointed. Elijah didn't get to the entrance of the city before Ahab did. He ran right in front of Ahab until they reached the entrance of the city. Now, again, that's going to take supernatural empowerment because I'm sure Ahab is not trotting in a rainstorm. And I can just imagine the prophet here who has just had a great victory, who has been unable to move this wicked king thus far by that great victory, by the love that he's shown, And there he is, not like some Greek god, you know, running, (laughs) got here before you, Ahab. But he's in the mud, in the rain, and he's in this position of a servant of the honor guard, because I doubt Ahab's got an honor guard in the rain. He's in this position of a servant to a man that has done so much wrong to him and those he loves. And he's there as his honor guard in the muck and the mire. So it's not only going to take supernatural empowerment, but it's going to take an amazing amount of humility and love for Ahab. The victorious prophet lowers himself to the position of a footman in a downpour for a king who had given no sign of repentance. I told you guys last week that I don't think Elijah could have worked for Ahab like Obadiah did. But I don't think that's because Elijah didn't want to work with Ahab. He is doing this service to Ahab to show him that I don't have a personal grudge against you, Ahab. I I don't hate you. I just don't agree with your decisions. It has nothing to do with you. That's important. Because when we consider how Elijah came onto the scene, if you're Ahab, you could get the impression, this guy doesn't like me very much. Because Elijah just shows up like a whirlwind. I mean, he just... Walt, he's this mountain man from Gilead. Really, you don't hear about, you don't hear anything about him in Scripture before this point. And he shows up in Samaria. This is the the, the high place in Israel. This is where all the people who are anybody are living and doing life. And this mountain man comes walking in and says, it's not going to rain until I say so. And then he disappears. And for three and a half years, your nation is in a raging famine. People are mad at you. They're frustrated. They they want you to do something. And so Ahab perceived Elijah as an enemy of the state. He went everywhere looking for him. But Elijah's actions all throughout the end of this chapter declare, Ahab, I'm not your enemy. You can be a good king, and I'll support you if you turn back to the Lord like the people on the mountain did. I'll be your footman. I'll be your runner. I'll have your back more than anybody else in rain or whatever, (laughs) no matter the weather. And thus, just as Elijah invited the people to come close, he invites Ahab to come close, to turn from his idolatry, to turn from his self-willed rule, to turn to the king of kings and the blessings that that king wants to give. Now, the fact that Elijah only performs this honor for Ahab until he reaches the entrance of the city shows that Ahab did not repent despite the love shown to him. And so instead of dealing with his sin, Ahab goes right to Jezebel in chapter 19, verse 1. 
And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Now, what makes this weird to me is that Ahab doesn't even mention a peep of his displeasure or his, even his thoughts at all to Elijah. He doesn't do anything to Elijah while he's up on the mountain. He doesn't do anything to Elijah on the way back. But now all of a sudden he's talking to his wife about it, clearly bringing up that he didn't like what happened. Was he afraid of God after seeing the fire on the mountain? I wouldn't blame him for that. <laughs> Was he afraid of the people who killed all the prophets of Baal? That seems a little bit more likely to me. He's probably going along with the flow. He probably feels like, I can't really do much right now. You know, I may be king, but I'm still just one man. I think that's more likely because once he's away from the people, he finally lets out his true thoughts on the situation to his wife. Now, I don't know exactly what was in Ahab's heart when he tells her what happened. The Bible doesn't tell us. But given how Jezebel is the one who sends Elijah the threat in verse 2, you know, that she sends a private message instead of soldiers, I think Ahab's mentality is my hands are tied. You know, we're going to just have to ride this out, babe, until we figure a workaround. I know you're probably upset about the prophets. I'm upset too. I didn't want this to go down this way, but I mean, our hands are tied right now. We, the people are, are with Elijah. They're not with us. And so he really doesn't do anything to Elijah. But Jezebel, she hadn't seen the fire. And you know, someone can tell you about a miracle, but it's not the same as seeing it. And so she was livid about the execution of her prophets. And so we don't know whether she does this with Ahab's knowledge or not. She sends a message to Elijah in verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not your life as the life of one of them, her prophets, by tomorrow about this time. Despite Ahab's report to her that her God was an Osho, Jezebel's still a believer, isn't she? Look at her words. So let the gods do to me. She's still a believer. I mean, Ed, honey, they were, they were all day. They were hopping up in the altar. They were cutting themselves. They were praying. They were doing everything. It was, a, it was one of the craziest services I've ever seen. And Baal just didn't show up. Didn't move her at all. She's still a full-fledged believer in the Canaanite pantheon. And I think this is why the writer mentions that Ahab's greatest wickedness was marrying this woman. Because she wasn't just an unbeliever. Her life decisions, how she decides to do life, they are based on her faith in these gods. And she believes they will hold her responsible if she doesn't get revenge against Elijah. So she is not just an unbeliever. She's not just someone who's like, well, you know, Jesus isn't for me. No, she is steeped in a false religion and she is willing to wage war to wipe out any competitors to her gods. The Bible tells us this is that mentality or spirit of Antichrist. This is the mentality that Lucifer had when he fell. He wants to replace the Lord and he is willing to destroy whatever he must in order to achieve it. So she tells him, the gods, may they put me to death if you're not dead by about this time tomorrow. Now, here's the question. Is she bluffing? Is she trying to get Elijah to run? Is she trying to manipulate him through fear so that she can kind of take the reins once the excitement dies down? Or is this a genuine threat? There's a part of me that thinks she's bluffing because if she's serious, why not do it today? I mean, what's she waiting for? Why send a messenger? You know, why give Elijah warning? Why not just kill him? You know, I mean, why send a messenger? Why not just a knife? Why not just an arrow from the top of the wall? We will never know whether it was she was bluffing or genuine because Elijah doesn't stick around to find out. Look at verse 3. And when he saw that, 
he arose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Now, we know Elijah did not enter the city with Ahab because it tells us he only went as far as the entrance. So the messenger likely finds Elijah somewhere near the city gates. I mean, Elijah's not, he's not like in, on Main Street, you know, riding a float and being like, victory, you know? I mean, that's not Elijah at this point. He's not in the local tavern, everybody buying him drinks. That's not Elijah here, all right? He's not the hero of the story. He's not being celebrated or anything. He's out by himself in the city gates, somewhere near there, outside the city. So Elijah has to know something's up when Ahab doesn't invite him inside. But what we see here is that he clearly did not anticipate Jezebel's threat. This so completely blindsided him. And so this man who had stood up to 450 prophets of Baal, the king and the representatives of the entire nation up there on the the mountaintop, this man who stood up to all that by himself, this man whose every action from the moment he walked into Samaria to pronounce God's judgment, to withhold the rain, from that moment up to, right up to running before Ahab's chariot had all been done at the command of God and in the power of God. All of it, every single thing, it mentions that God told him to do this. That same man now, all of a sudden decides to lean on his own understanding. And why does he do that? Because he was afraid. This word where it says, and when he saw, the word does mean to see or understand, but it is sometimes translated to fear. And the way it's written here, the way the Hebrew is constructed, usually when it's constructed that way, they would translate it, and when he was afraid. But even if the writer didn't intend to say when he was afraid, just when he saw, like when he realized what was going on, this message, I know Elijah was afraid because of where he went. Beersheba is not just outside the nation of Israel. It's not just outside Ahab's influence. It's the farthest south you can go in the promised land and still be in the promised land. This is literally, this is, like, this is like Jonah when, you know, he goes to Joppa and he's like, I want a ship to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? As far as you can, it's humanly possible to go at that point. He just, he goes to nowhere. And the writer tells us the reason that he goes so far away is because he's running for his life. Every word of this verse breathes that Elijah is scared. Now, why would Elijah be afraid of a voicemail from Jezebel's receptionist after not even giving a hint of fear at all the other scary situations he's been in? And he's been in a lot. When he comes and he tells Ahab, he goes, it's not going to rain until I say so. Great. How are you going to get water? And he goes to this wadi where the Lord provides for him not just water, but food through ravens because he's public enemy number one. It's not like he can just show up at a store and be like, I'll take some bread and some chicken. He has to trust God every day to take care of him. Every day he doesn't know where his food's coming from except that the Lord said he would provide food from ravens. And then when the wadi dries up, the Lord says, okay, go to a foreign country, the city of uh, Zarephath, And there's going to be a widow there, and she's going to take care of you. (laughs) I mean, I'm not the adventurous type, but I'm not sure most of us would just, for no reason whatsoever, just decide to go, well, I'm going to go to this place that, you know, another country and just show up at this lady's door and be like, hey, God told me you're going to take care of me. But he does. He never seems to exhibit any fear. And he stays with her for about three years, She doesn't have any food, but God supernaturally provides for them. Then he does the whole thing on Mount Carmel, which, I mean, for me, that would be a little frightening. I remember I was invited to um, go to this uh, local um, groundbreaking ceremony for a large organization in the area. And and somehow there was some connection with us, and so they asked me to come say the, the prayer. 
And I'm like, I'm, I'm praying in Jesus' name. I'm not doing any of this God stuff. Then I get there, and people that was there, they clearly make a lot of money. It was a different world. The conversations were different. Like, they would sit down and be like, oh, so what are you doing here? And be like, oh, I'm here to do the invocation. Like, oh, you know, I'm someone who's really important. And I'm like, I'm not. I think we all have had situations where we feel either outnumbered or like out of place. And and you're like, I want to honor the Lord, but at the same time, I'd really like to stay alive or keep my job or whatever it might be. He doesn't seem to exhibit any fear there either. So why this time? James 5.17 tells us he was a man of like passions. It means that he went through the same internal struggles that you and I do. Elijah's reaction here is so incredibly human. It is so incredibly human. Like, logic says, Elijah, if there's going to be a moment to run, there's like four or five other moments, all right, before this one. Why this one? But we don't operate logically a lot. Like, I, maybe you do, but I don't. I have so many moments in my life where I have been trusting God and watching Him land haymaker, haymaker after haymaker against the enemy, where I've watched God use me to work in someone's life in a powerful way, but then one thing catches me by surprise and doesn't go my way, something I didn't anticipate, I didn't expect, kind of blindsides me, and I feel like it's the end of the world. And I'm guessing I'm probably not alone in that. Some of the most discouraging Mondays for me as a pastor have come after some of the best sermons, the best conversations I've had on a Sunday. Some of the worst nights I've had of sleep came the day after a miraculous answer to prayer. And the crazy thing is, when you start feeling all those emotions and all those thoughts start banging around inside your head, very often when you've seen God move very recently and now you're struggling, in addition to the struggle, the enemy brings shame. Never underestimate the difficulty of disappointment. Never underestimate the influence of feeling like a failure. This is not at all how Elijah expected things to go. And his thought is that if his life could be in danger after all that he had done for the Lord up to this point, all the Lord had done for him, then there was nothing more that he could do to convince Ahab to let him live. And that thought terrified him. Like what else, like how do you get better than calling down fire from heaven? Like Like how do I provide a more convincing argument to the king? If that's not enough, there's there's nothing else I can do. And the thought comes over him, I'm going to lose my head. I understand Elijah's logic. I understand being scared. And I certainly understand feeling like a failure. I think most of us would. But his logic, like ours often, his logic here is flawed. Because his logic is laser focused on a single negative thing in his life. The reality is the situation was actually quite positive. The people had confessed their faith in the Lord to the point that not just that, you know, they obeyed His instructions to like go serve God. They had executed 450 idolatrous prophets of Baal. Like that's a positive. And Ahab, whatever he might think about Elijah, Ahab had not retaliated against him at all and he had plenty of opportunity to do so. If anything, Elijah has all the momentum in the world going for him. The situation in Israel right now is ripe for God to bring revival to his people and to reign in this wicked king. Yes, Jezebel threatens him, and yes, she's a powerful person. But she is just one person in comparison to the Lord, and the Lord has already kept Ahab a equally powerful person from doing anything to him. So why does Elijah give in to disappointment and fear when those are the facts? 
Well, I said earlier that he leaned on his own understanding, and here's how I know he did that. Because later on in the chapter, God asks Elijah, he goes, Elijah, what are you doing all the way down here? What are you doing down here? In other words, as we read verses 3 through 8, and Elijah ends up at Mount Sinai, Everything Elijah does from verses 3 through 8 was decided upon without consulting God for instructions. Every, every bit of it. He doesn't consult God for instructions. Prior to this moment in verse 3, everything Elijah had done, every decision he had made about where to go and what to do, he made it because he was following God's instructions. And when you and I stop seeking God for instructions, or when you and I decide to stop listening to the instructions God's already given us, our decision-making is going to become poor. We're not going to see things correctly. The Bible tells us that we are not ignorant of the enemy's devices. We have numerous examples in the Bible of faithful people experiencing the hardest temptations after their biggest victories. Guys, the enemy does not go away after we win a battle. He doesn't give up after we win a battle, nor does he pass up an opportunity to attack when we are emotionally drained from the high of that victory. I have had days where it's been like, yeah, God, this is awesome, this is great, and you're just kind of basking in that, and you're bouncing around, and just the day is good, like I'll come home, Bev's like, wow, you're happy today, I'm like, God, it's good. And then all of a sudden, you know, you sit down, and you crack open the email, and it's like, somebody hates me. Like somebody's lying about me or, or whatever it might be. This bills, what, what's this, you know? Where did this come from, you know? And then all of a sudden, you know, the, the emotions are drained and, and you're vulnerable and the enemy's like, whammo. There's nothing wrong with celebrating what God does. We should do that, but we must never, we can never afford to let our guard down. I must remain vigilant and always as the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6, stay strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Because Elijah let his guard down when he got blindsided, gets blindsided like this. All that faith in the Lord's love for His people, all that love Elijah had for the Lord and for his countrymen and even for Ahab, it all turns inward now as he focuses on this fear, this one negative thing, and he decides to trust in himself, his own take of the situation, instead of seeking the Lord for instructions. So Elijah does one of the most shameful things that a person can do. He forsakes the Lord's plan, and he forsakes the people that he'd been called to stand in the gap for. And what happens by the end of verse three is when Elijah logically thinks I'm safe, the reality of that, what he's done, it hits him like a tidal wave. What did I just do? I just, I just left all those people to the wolves. And so a severe depression sets in. And so verse three at the end, it tells us that he leaves his servant in the city and he heads into the desert to die, verse 4. Leaves his servant there, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came and he sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. This desert area is the same region that Israel wandered in for 40 years because they didn't trust the Lord. Elijah, Elijah feels like, this is where I belong. And he goes under a juniper tree. It's called the broom tree out there. It's a desert shrub, and it's literally the saddest tree you've ever seen in your life. Like, like it's, it's, this, it's got this skinny, scrawny kind of trunk. And then as it goes up, it... They can get big enough that you know, a group of 25 people can go underneath it for shade, but the shade's horrible because like, it just doesn't bloom well. You know, There's so much space in between the way the branches grow. It's just like it's the saddest tree ever. 
And he goes and he, he sits alone under this solitary tree in the same desert that all of his ancestors died in because they wouldn't trust God. And he gives up. He gives God two reasons why he's finished. He says, number one, it's enough. And number two, I'm not better than my forefathers. It is enough means he could be saying, I've done everything that can be done and it wasn't good enough. Or he could be saying, I can't do this anymore. It's too much. Either one works here. The Hebrew is a little bit less precise than the New Testament language. I've done everything that can be done and it's not good enough or it's too much. I can't do it anymore. I'm not good enough. Elijah, we'll see later in the chapter, he's frustrated with his people and he's frustrated with Ahab and Jezebel. He's emotionally stressed out. He's physically tired. He had given everything and at this point he's got nothing left in the tank. And his, his calculation of the situation is, I'm not enough. I, I need to be put out to pasture. You need to find somebody else, God. And then his second reason is, I'm not better than my fathers. I remember one of the first times I read through this and realized I'd been saying those words myself so many times. I remember reading through this and realizing what was going on with Elijah here and that I had verbalized, I'm not like that person. I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm no better than this person who failed. I'm no better. I'm not as good as this pastor or this dad or this husband or this Christian or this friend or whatever it might be. I'm just like, and then figure out all the bad examples. I'm just like them. I'm no better than my forefathers who died in the same desert. You told them they couldn't go into the promised land because they wouldn't trust you. He says, Lord, my forefathers refused to trust you and they complained every step of the way you took them, even though you're faithful to them and I deserve the same fate as them, Lord. So Lord, take my life in this desert just like you took theirs. Now, we could camp out right here if we wanted to for like 12 weeks because there are so many topics that we could discuss based on Elijah's struggles in this verse. We could talk about how depression can affect a believer. It's possible. We can talk about how depression affects a believer. We could talk about how it's possible for a, a genuine believer to have suicidal thoughts. We could talk about how sometimes people with a genuine call on their lives lose hope, give up, and walk away from their calling. There are so many topics that we could discuss here, but while all those discussions would be valid, biblical discussions, the writer's main focus, though, is sharing, sharing this story of Elijah and his relationship with God to all the exiles in Babylon who feel very much like Elijah does here. He's writing to exiles who are thinking, we blew it, we missed it, God's done with us. Or... Maybe God's not done, but there's no way we can rise up to the occasion. We're no better than our forefathers. One of the enemy's lies is that your situation is unique. Your failure is unique. That your failures uniquely disqualify you from ever being used by God again in any way. That the promises and the hopes presented in the Bible apply to other people, but not to you. not to your shame, not to your sin. To the exiles, the writer here is saying, listen, listen to God's response to Elijah. So in verse 5, it says, And as he lay and slept under the juniper tree, behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. That Elijah lay down to sleep means God's answer to Elijah's prayer was no. God, take my life. No, Elijah, I'm not answering that prayer. It's a stupid prayer. 
I don't like it when God answers my prayers with a no, but I have had the privilege to see how some of those no's would have been disasters if God said yes. Elijah did not like God's answer either, because instead of getting back to work, he makes another decision without seeking the Lord. He stubbornly decides to, well, I'll just keep wandering in the desert like my forefathers did. And there's no way that Elijah's going to survive that without supernatural help, even if he takes a nap. So even though Elijah is not where God wants him to go, the Lord sends an angel to provide him with what he needs. It says, behold, an angel touched him. That's a surprise to Elijah. Elijah didn't expect the Lord to touch him in any way, unless he was going to kill him. He said unto him, rise and eat, the angel. And so he looked, and behold, there was, he didn't bring any food. This tells you, this, he's ready to die. He doesn't bring any food with him goes into the desert without food or water. And he looked, and behold, there was a cake baked on the coals and a cruise of water at his head. So he did eat and drink and went back to sleep. And the angel of the Lord came and touched him a second time, or came again the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. Journey's too great for you. But yeah, verse 8 tells us that he ends up at Mount Sinai. That's way down in the Arabian Peninsula. Now, it's only about a seven or eight day journey, but it says in verse eight, he arose and did eat and drink and then went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights unto Oreb, the mount of God. Oreb's just another name for Sinai. A seven or eight day trip took 40 days. But you know what I find interesting in all this? So comforting. Elijah's not thinking correctly. His decision-making is bad, you know? You know, what am I going to do? I'm not going back to Israel. I mean, I, I can't. I'm not good enough. I'm no better than my forefathers, so I'll do what my forefathers did. I'll wander around the desert. You know, and now, I've had my kids act like that sometimes. Well, you know, I guess, you know, you know I just, you know, I won't have any friends. You know, and you, like, there's a part of me that, like, I start off, and I'm kind of like, no, that's, you know that's not true. But, like, if they keep going on and on, I'm like, dude, quit being dumb, you know? <laughs> that's ridiculous. I, well, probably not politically correct to share a Cosby joke, but there's a, there was on the Cosby show, there was one time when his son was talking about school, and he, you know, he says, Dad, you know, I just, I need time to explore myself, and grades are not what it's about. It's about the learning experience. You know, and he goes to this big, long speech, and his dad goes, is that how you really feel about this, son? And he goes, yeah, Dad. He goes, you know, will you support me in this? And he goes, no. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and he grounded him. And there are moments like that, you know, you're trying to be compassionate with somebody, and then finally you're like, okay, okay, enough is enough. Like, quit the pity party, yeah, everything's bad for you, all right? Other people are struggling worse than you. Put your big boy pants on and get back to work. But God doesn't do that. And here's the crazy part, God knows exactly what he's going to do. Like Elijah doesn't be like, well, God, I'm just going to wander around the desert. He goes, just takes a nap. Wakes up, eats, and take another nap. You know, and while he's napping, he's like, I'm just going to wander around the desert. The Lord knows all that. He knows all of it. And so the second time the angel pokes him, you know, wakes him up, he's like, you need to eat because the journey's too far for you. <laughs> like there have been so many moments in my life where I'm just like, well, you know what? I'm not good enough. I'm just going to do my own thing. You know, I can never be a good Christian, whatever. I'm not going to care anymore. The Lord's like, all right, I'll walk with you for a bit. Can I take care of this for you? Can I take care of this for you? And the Lord is just good. He's just good in the shame and in the, the brokenheartedness and the depression and the frustration with self. He just starts melting your heart. And you come to that same place with Peter where he goes, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of life. That verse means so much to me because that's always been the answer when I've come to those crossroads. What else are you going to do, Will? Like, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, it's, what other thing are you going to do with your life? Just put one foot down in front of the other. Just keep putting the next foot down. You don't know where you're going to be 20 steps from now, but you can do one step. So put the next foot down and just keep walking with the Lord. God who knew where, what Elijah planned to do and where Elijah ended up, probably before Elijah knew where he'd end up. 
God mercifully provides supernatural sustenance for his discouraged servant. And even though he is not acting like Moses at all, just like God supernaturally kept Moses alive on Mount Sinai without food for 40 days and 40 nights, these two meals keep Elijah going for 40 days until he reaches Mount Sinai. Now, when Elijah gets to Mount Sinai, the Lord decides that Elijah has run from his calling long enough. And God willing, if the Lord tarries, we'll look at that very interesting conversation next week in verse 9. So let's all stand. This chapter means a lot to me personally. You know, I... You ever go to bed at night and you think of some of the things you've done? The shame that hits you. Like, you, did you really say that, Will? Did you really do that? I'm so glad for God's incredible love and mercy. I'm so glad that he forgives me, he forgives us, he he washes us clean, and, and he keeps walking with us as if it didn't happen, that he still wants to use us. So Lord, you know everything about us. You know things that nobody else knows that we've thought. Lord, you know those things that only a few people know that we've done or said. And Lord, you love us anyway. And so, like Peter, we confess tonight, Lord, we don't want to go anywhere else. Lord, I pray for those who might be struggling right now to put that next foot down, where, where the road ahead, 20 steps ahead or 50 steps ahead looks terrifying. And maybe even, Lord, they've got something that's really negative in their life and they're laser focused on that. Would you remind them, Lord, that you love them, even when they're afraid, even when they make bad decisions, even when they're not where they're supposed to be, that you love them? And you're there with them and you're, you're not going to leave them. You're going to keep on drawing them back because you're not finished with them. Lord, the reality is <laughs> Elijah wasn't Superman and neither are we. We're just sinners saved by grace. So Lord, thank you for that grace and help us to rest in that, to receive your love and to keep walking with you, knowing that you will finish the work you started in us. In Jesus' name, amen.